This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Tonic, heard Saturday afternoons at 1 on Zoomer Radio. The following is a sponsored program. Zoomer Radio and MZ Media Incorporated do not endorse any of the statements or opinions made by the contributors. There is a difference between a healthy lifestyle and losing weight. You kind of have to know where you're starting and where you're going, and you have to figure out, is it a weight loss journey or is it a health journey or is it both? Because they can overlap, but you can get healthier without losing weight, and you can lose weight without becoming healthier. Welcome to The Tonic. I'm your host, Jamie Busson, and we're here to talk about your health and wellness. On today's show, we're going to bust some joint health myths. We're also going to discuss how mindfulness can help your sex life. Then we're going to learn the best way to lose weight around your middle. And lastly, we're going to talk about the importance of blood maintenance in our medical system. But first, a little bit of business. Today's show is brought to you by Omega Alpha. Omega Alpha is 100% Canadian owned and has been GMP certified for manufacturing to pharmaceutical standards since its inception in 1992. It uses only all natural herbs, vitamins, and minerals in their formulations. The company is site licensed for manufacturing nutraceuticals by the Natural Health Products Directorate, a division of Health Canada. They have four company divisions, both a consumer line and professional line of human products, equine health products, and a custom manufacturing private label division. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, please visit their website at omegaalphainc.com. Omega Alpha's products are created by their scientific team, headed by their owner, operator, and CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Dr. Chang holds a PhD in physiology and biomedical engineering from the University of Toronto. He also has two years postdoctoral experience in clinical biochemistry, looking at free radicals and antioxidants. He's published over 20 peer-reviewed articles and conference proceedings. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? Very good, Jamie. Thanks for having me again on your show. Today, we're going to be talking about something that is near and dear to me because as a runner and somebody who exercises, I feel it in my knees and I feel it in my ankles. We're going to talk about bone and joint health, right? Very good. That sounds like a plan. Okay. So we're going to play a little game today. We're going to bust some bone and joint health myths, okay? Good. All right. Myth number one. Not all supplements, like glucosamine, will benefit those with joint pain, such as arthritis. Okay. Let's clear the air a little bit, because when people think of joint supplements, the first thing that pops into everybody's mind is glucosamine. Right. Now, why glucosamine is good, it's basically a building block for the repair of things like cartilage and so on. The body needs glucosamine in order to build more cartilage and so on. Normally, the body can produce enough glucosamine on its own to rebuild cartilage. But as we grow older, if we exercise a lot, you stress the ability of the body to produce glucosamine. So, therefore, you need some from outside. But what everybody doesn't realize is that to build joints, you need more than just straight glucosamine. Right? Let's say you're building a brick wall. Yep. If you're building a brick wall and your glucosamine is basically your cement, you still need the bricks, Yep. you still need the water, you still need the sand, you still need the gravel, you need the heat in order to build a brick wall, right? Right. So giving you just straight glucosamine by itself and not giving you any of the other ingredients, 
you know, is not the total solution. So what other ingredients should people be looking you, for? You need things like the B vitamins, right? What the B vitamins do, they are cofactors in the enzymatic reaction to help implant some of that, to help build that brick wall using your glucosamine. Yep. So you need the, the enzymes to help power that conversion of glucosamine into cartilage, right? Okay. More importantly, you also need things like collagen. And what collagen will do, it provides you with... Two key amino acids, proline and hydroxyproline, yep. right? And what that will do, it is one of the key factors in helping build something called the extracellular matrix. You need things like vitamin C to help build all of these things. But last but not least, you also need your calcium, your magnesium, and you need a whole bunch of these trace minerals, things like manganese, selenium, silicon, zinc, all those type of things, copper. You, all, you need all of those things in there. So just taking glucosamine by itself is not going to do the job, you know, to build. You need all these other cofactors. How do you get all the cofactors? What's the best way of getting them? Well, the best place I always say with these things is in food. Right. But I know it's very difficult to get all of this stuff from food. So your, your next best bet is to get a joint supplement, right? Unfortunately, out there, there's very few joint supplements that contain all of this in one. So what a lot of people do, they have to buy one of those, they buy that, that, that. By the time you look into, look into it, you have a handful of pills, right. right? That's the alternative. But if you go on our website, we do have something that has all of these things incorporated together as a one-stop shop. Now, another thing that I need to clarify to chondroitin, is one of the big ingredients everybody thinks about with um, joint. Uh -huh. Well, all the studies I've ever looked at have always said that the human body is only being able to absorb 10% of your chondroitin. And if you look at what chondroitin is made up of, it's a polymer, uh, a naturally occurring polymer, but it's made up of, of um, galactosamine and something called glucuronic acid. Mm -hmm. Now, galactosamine is something similar to glucosamine. It's an isomer of glucosamine. The body actually takes glucosamine, converts into galactosamine, and vice versa, all right? Because mm -hmm. sometimes the body uses glucosamine, sometimes they use galactosamine. But if you're absorbing just galactosamine, you're only getting 10% of, of the chondroitin. So you're better off just doubling down on your glucosamine because the body does convert some of that glucosamine to galactosamine. Right. Okay. So, do you need chondroitin? The answer that I've seen in the studies basically are saying to you, no. Oh. Right. But I know that people out there swear in a stack of Bibles that chondroitin is the only thing that works for them. Right. Right. Uh, but it's interesting that after you say that, you don't see a product that's straight 100% um, chondroitin. It's always combined with glucosamine. Right. Ah, okay. So that that's interesting. Yeah. You know, so these are some of the um, the major things that people think about, you know, uh, should think about when you're taking a supplement for, for joint problems. Now, another thing that people will talk about with joint problems is pain. Yes. Right? Pain is usually products of inflammation. Yes. Right? And in order to control pain, you have to control inflammation. And anybody with joint problems, whether you have osteoarthritis, rheumatoid arthritis, or any of the, or any joint issues, if there's pain, right, there's usually inflammation. And one of the things that inflammation does, inflammation actually helps break down bad tissue, right? So inflammation is a necessary evil. It breaks down bad tissue and it allows the body to then to rebuild good tissue. The problem with inflammation is that if you have chronic low-grade inflammation, right, you have a lot of 
continual destruction of tissue going on, be it good and bad. What happens in the body then is that there's always a, a race to, to catch up with rebuilding the tissue, right? So you need to take some anti-inflammatories to help control that pain, to help control that inflammation. Now, the problem with anti-inflammatories, there's a lot of the drug ones, right? So you you have things like ibuprofens of the world, you yes. have the acetylsalicylic acids of the world. You have a whole bunch of different um, anti-inflammatories that you can get off the shelf, off the counter. The problem with a lot of these anti-inflammatories is that long-term use, right, they have many destructive effects, okay? They can cause, cause ulcers, they can damage your kidneys, damage your liver, long-term use, right? But if you have arthritis, there's no shortcut. It's all, it will be long-term. So you're better off trying to get some herbal anti-inflammatories that actually will help control the inflammation. And the best thing to do is to find it in a product that you can take that has the herbal anti-inflammatories in there in conjunction with your glucosamine and so on. And the reason you want to do that is like everybody else. People get tired of taking five different things, right? If you can get it all in one, yep. everybody is happier because you, you know you're just taking it once. Yeah, one-stop shop. One-stop shop, right? Another thing too is frequency of how you of these things. Now, most people think of a lot of these joint supplements as, as drugs. They think, oh, if the bottle says take one teaspoon, I should only be taking one teaspoon. These things are very safe um, supplements, right? And, and the reason I will say they're very safe is because if they were dangerous, Health Canada would never give what we call an NP number, a natural product number to it. Yep. But it's like anything else. If you abuse it over long term, it could potentially cause a lot of different issues, right? Like mm-hmm. side effects. However, you know, it's like anything else. I, I use this analogy. If you have a bad headache, you take two aspirin tablets. If you have a not a, just a, a, a little headache, you take one aspirin tablet. It's the same thing with these joint things. If you have bad arthritis, you may need to take more right, than what's stated on the bottle. As I said, the safety margin on any of these supplements are much higher than drugs. Right, so okay. you can potentially take these things for months, right, and years without any ill effects, meaning like if you double or triple or even triple the dose that's stated on the bottle. Okay. Right? All right, so so that that's very helpful. Why don't we go back and bust some more myths, though? Okay. okay? All right, so number one, everyone experiences joint pain as we age. Is that true? Most of the times, unfortunately, that's true. You do have the occasional person who will say to you, I don't have joint pain, right? A lot of Liars. it depends on how, <laughs> how thick your cartilage is, yep. right? How, how much exercise you do, how much you abuse that joint, right? Yep. But as we do grow older, whether we like it or not, that cartilage thickness drops. That's why if you ever go see your, your rheumatologist or your doctor, the first thing he says is that you have osteoarthritis. Everybody has osteoarthritis as you grow older because what happens is how they, they know you have osteoarthritis to look at the thickness of your cartilage in an x-ray. Yeah. And if it gets thinner than normal, they say you have osteoarthritis. And we all get it. The, the thing about um, supplementation is that well, you can't cure the osteoarthritis, but you can fight the breakdown of the tissue. So normally, let's say you didn't take any any supplementation and you exercise like crazy, etc. You, like you're yep. a runner, you run, yep. right? You stress the knees out. 
Yeah, you'll get you'll get painful knees probably within say ten years, right? You if got you that take right. supplements, it may be fifteen years before you get painful knees, or twenty years if you're lucky, right? Again, it depends on a your supplementation. It depends on your individual biochemistry. Depends on your activity levels. Okay. Next one: foods we eat don't affect joint pain. Is that true? That is not true because some foods that you eat do have inflammation effects on the body, right? Okay. And if you take some some foods which have which have inflammatory effects, it can potentially cause achy joints. And the stories I've heard, right? Yep. Uh, people who take plants that belong to the nightshade family, for example, tomatoes, right? right? Um, you hear stories about people when toma- when their tomatoes are plentiful and the canning tomatoes, etc., and the tomatoes are a huge part of the diet at that point in time. Everybody eats flare up, and again, oh. some people with tomatoes, right, can cause inflammation. And I use the word some, not everybody, because for every one person I, who will tell me that, there's probably another two or three who will say, no, that doesn't happen to me. But as again, if your biochemistry um, dictates that you're going to flare up, unfortunately, it's in your biochemistry. Okay. Here's one that seems logical to me. Excess weight is a cause of joint pain. That is definitely uh, something that can happen. Uh, a lot of people, again, you weight bearing. Yep. If you if you're doing a lot more, um, you have extra weight. What happens is stresses your joints out more. If you stress your joints out more, you will have more inflammation. You have more inflammation. You have breakdown of tissue, etc. Definitely is is what can happen. Okay, here's one that's near and dear to me. Exercise exacerbates joint damage. Is that true? Yes, because the stress is joint. But it doesn't say you shouldn't exercise because here's one of the pluses of exercise. Because when you exercise or on a frequent basis, you lose weight. And if you're losing weight, you're taking one of the factors that stresses joints out. Secondly, when you exercise, your body produces something called endorphins. One yep. of the things with endorphins is that it makes a lot of pain more tolerable, right? I mean, a lot of us have exercised to the point of exhaustion, and I knew though, once, you, once you've stopped and you are in your recovery phase, even though you ache, you feel a lot more comfortable. Runner's right? high, yeah. You, you know, so you can bear a lot of the pain. So even people who I would say have arthritis, etc., should get some activity in. You, you know, you got to power through some of that pain, and it makes everything a lot more tolerable. Yeah, and in my experience, you know, after you do the exercise, it's actually easier to stretch out as well, right? You're not stretching cold. So even though you're putting stress on the joints, you're able to sort of uh, massage or, or do self-massage with rollers and, and stretches to make things feel a bit better. That is true. You actually do feel a lot better after exercise, so the pain doesn't seem to, to hurt as much. Okay, here's another one. If you have arthritis that happens to flare up, you should take it easy. Yes, you should take it easy and baby the joint a bit, but it's like anything else. It's not it's not 100% take easy, meaning that you sit on your butt and watch TV, because what right. happens then is that you actually can make it worse. That's why I always say to people, you baby it a little bit. You, you don't go run the marathon, but you get up and you walk up and down the street a couple times. It's not an excuse right. to sit around and watch Netflix. That's right. <laughs> okay. Actually, you could do that when you exercise. That's true. <laughs> that's true. If you're if you're on an elliptical, you could watch Netflix. That's right. You, you, that's my secret of staying sane on the elliptical. That's a shout out to my father-in-law. <laughs> All right. So what about rain and damp weather? Does that cause arthritis? It doesn't cause 
cause arthritis per se. There's really actually very little evidence to say that it causes arthritis, right? Yeah. But I do know there's a lot of people out there who will swear on a stack of Bibles that every time it rains or, or so, it, it makes the arthritis seem worse, right? Yeah. You know, there are people who are sensitive to weather changes, etc. But if you're looking for cause and effect, meaning that somebody did a study and found that this, this happens or that happens, that data out there is not very reliable. But as I say, you know, if if um, somebody experiences it, it does not make it false, right? There's yeah, it's, it's real. It's real. Alternative explanations. It, it's a, it's real for them. It's real for them. That's correct. Okay. Well, that's all the time we have today. Thank you for coming in. Well, we're going to have you back next month, right? It would be my pleasure. Excellent. We've got to take a short break, but when we come back, we're going to discuss how mindfulness can help your sex life on the tonic. The Benvenuto Group is an owner and developer of quality high-rise condominium and rental properties in Toronto and Montreal. The Benvenuto team is passionate about delivering quality living spaces, top lifestyle amenities, important services, and innovative design tailored specifically to its residents in every particular submarket. The Benvenuto Group seeks out the finest urban neighborhoods and designs projects to allow its residents to enjoy the benefits of both their property and the exceptional locations that they become a part of. The team surrounds itself with leading professionals and consultants and pushes them to conceive great places to live, to work, and to play. The Benvenuto Group is currently designing several new projects in Toronto, Montreal, and Chicago that will not only become exceptional places to live as an owner or as a renter, but that will deliver some of the highest levels of sustainability, energy efficiency, and comfort, and will set the standard for informed residents. For more information, please visit thebenvenuto.com. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their Liquid Greens Chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid Greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained, natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural, liquid greens. You're listening to The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Carlisle Jansen is the founder of Good For Her, Toronto's premier sexuality shop and workshop centre in Toronto. And she's the producer of the Toronto International Porn Festival. She's also the author of two books, including Sex Yourself. Watch her TEDx Toronto talk and educational videos at carlislejansen.com. And she can be reached at Carlisle at goodforher.com. Welcome back to the show, my friend. Hello, always a pleasure. So you also write the sexual health column in Tonic Magazine. And in the summer issue, you wrote a fantastic article about the connection between mindfulness and sex, right? Yes. So we've been exploring the concept of mindfulness for the past year and how it relates to the yoga lifestyle. Yep. And the neuroscientific explanation about how it all works and how it's good for you and wonderful. But today we're going to talk about mindfulness and sex, which is a sort of a different tangent that people might not connect. So in the article, you start talking about the antithesis of living in the moment, which is multitasking and how multitasking is kind of ruining our our personal lives, right? Yeah. Well, and we think of it as being efficient. (laughs) We think of it as I'm going to do three things at the same time and save myself, you know, this extra 20 minutes when actually you're not paying attention 
really to any of those three things. Right. And when we have sex, the same thing happens right. that we multitask. And sometimes we're thinking about grocery lists. Sometimes we're thinking about make sure to take out the laundry later. Yep. And often then we're not actually noticing what we're feeling. And, you know, it happens a lot in, as you said, other areas, right? And people are learning about mindfulness and yoga and other disciplines. The example I like to use is that, you know, say you're eating a chocolate truffle, yep. you know, or somebody gave you a nice box of them and you're doing it while you watch TV or, well, looking on the internet, you're cleaning, you're, you know, doing whatever. And all of a sudden it's gone and you're trying to remember what it tasted like. Right. And that happens when we're having sex right. is that we're thinking about other things, we're doing other things because, you know, you can kind of go on autopilot often. Well, I, I, rarely ha- <laughs> I, I rarely have truffles during sex, but I get what you mean. <laughs> well, I think this affects women a little bit more than yeah. men. I think women are really trained to multitask much more. And in my experience, men can be much more focused on the moment. Well, uh, scientifically, I think women are more capable of multitasking. Right. And, and I think it's the way the, the female brain, brain is, yeah. is wired. Yeah. Yeah. It's wired. It literally is wired yeah. differently. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, with the ability to multitask. Right. Because you know, you're watching your kids, you're cooking some food and you're making sure that, you know, something's not falling down. Right. <laughs> yeah. No. So so it makes sense that women would be more yeah. distracted during sex. At least that's the excuse. Yeah. I, why yeah. are you so distracted? Well, yeah. she, she's female. That's why she's right. not, not because of me. <laughs> I'm, I'm a, I get it. So in the article, you reference Lori Brado, who's written a book about mindfulness, helping women have better sex lives. So yeah. what's her theory? Her theory is that if we are present to the moment we have better sex and uh, we're noticing what's going on. We feel the sensations. So what the studies have shown is that it improves your ability to orgasm. It improves arousal, better lubrication, increased pleasure. Somebody else found out also that it has better communication. So if you're in the moment, you can notice it. And, you know, the, the main ingredient in an aphrodisiac is a relaxant. Right. And I think that's because if we're stressed out, you know, that's taking over our attention and we're not noticing the little bits of arousal. When you take away the distraction of whatever it else it might be, then all of a sudden we can notice even those little things and focus on them and they tend to augment when you are present to them. I guess what she's saying is you're trying to filter out all the distractions really yeah. in order to focus better and, and sort of savor that truffle. Yes, as, absolutely. As, right? Yeah. Yeah. And she talks about how our minds are like a wandering puppy, you know, like yep. it's, oh, it's here and it's there and then it's this and then it's that, you know, and trying to train ourselves to stay just present on the one thing that we're doing, notice it and savor it and be present to it. And most people will find that they actually have more sensation then. I guess it's almost like a rumination or a meditation during the actual physical act. Right? Yes. I, I mean, to bring yourself into Absolutely. the moment yeah. as, as opposed to drifting off and thinking, okay, yeah. you know, when we're finished this, I've still got yeah. to go take out the garbage. Yeah, still... Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And it just, yeah, it makes a huge difference to what we're feeling. That makes sense. So mindfulness can help with pain. How does that yeah. connect to what we're discussing okay. today? Okay. And studies have shown that it helps with all kinds of pain, so not just sexual pain. Right. And it seems a bit counterintuitive, but I actually sort of practiced this last time I went to the dentist and I was really stressed and I was, oh. <laughs> And then when I thought, okay, I'm just going to pay attention to what I feel, actually what I felt was way less than what I was anticipating. 
Really? Yes, absolutely. And I was able to be much more calm and I was like, oh, that's not so bad. Okay, I can just deal with this. So now sometimes our pain is more intense. And what happens is that people actually go through it rather than fearing it and avoiding it, which makes it more magnified. And the anxiety of it also intensifies the pain. Well, it's fear of the unknown, right? Yes, completely. We're on edge. Uh, You know, collaterally, when I used to practice law, Mm -hmm. I would never threaten anything because when you threaten something, you're actually informing the other Mm -hmm. side as to what the consequences are. Whereas if you leave them guessing as to what's going to happen if they do X, Y, or Z, that's far more frightening to somebody. Yeah. Far yeah. more intimidating. Yeah, you, you, don't, you don't. You don't actually make a real threat. You yeah. kind of say, "I wouldn't do that if I were you." You're not going to like what's going right, to happen. Right. Well, what's going to happen? You know. Yeah. And and in your mind, when somebody makes that kind of statement, sure, your mind immediately goes to the worst place, yeah, right? As sure. opposed to the place they're yeah. taking you, if they yeah. actually defined what the pain is going to be. Yeah. And I and I think this is sort of a similar circumstance. Our brains are attuned to assuming the worst. This pain. Yes. I've been to the dentist before. This is yes. what it's going to feel like. Yes. Right. I totally understand how mindfulness would sort of take you out of that mindset and actually say, okay, everything isn't as bad. Notice the pain that you're actually feeling. Right. It isn't the pain that you anticipated. Yes. And there's a story that she has actually where somebody was resisting mindfulness and actually when she started just paying attention, she noticed the pain and actually she was able to take note of what kind of pain it was, went to her doctor. There was actually something wrong. Oh, wow. Wow. (laughs) And so she was able to fix it and lo and behold, she has no or less pain and she has better sex now. Right. Because the interesting thing about pain is a lot of it is displaced, right? Our mind puts it, you know, like maybe you have a rotator cuff issue, but it's manifesting itself in another part of your arm. Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah. Cool. Okay, so how does mindfulness actually help with sex? How does that work? So it's about noticing. So for a lot of us, especially women, again, we have a lot of negative thoughts. You know, what if I don't orgasm? Men have them too. What if I don't ejaculate? It's yep. all these what ifs, right? Again, the anticipation, the fear, the nervousness. And so what happens is that we are in anxiety. And when we're in anxiety, we go into fight or flight and our whole pleasure system shuts down because our ancient brain is saying, you know, danger, there's a bear chance chasing me. Right. Not a good time to have an erection, right? <laughs> well, yeah, it can get in the way. If you're right. <laughs> so when we are anxious or we're worried about what might happen or the grocery list or if we look good or whatever, yep. then our body isn't relaxed and able to actually feel the pleasure. Okay. Now in the article, you wrote that mindfulness can help keep our sex life fresh. What do you mean by that? John Kabat-Zinn was the one who really started talking about mindfulness, uh, I don't know, 20 years ago. And he talks about the beginner's mind, that what we, we can approach anything, whether it be sex, whether it be a walk on the beach, whether it be eating a meal. If you look at it with a beginner's mind, we notice subtleties, we notice new things. And rather than, oh, I know you like this, and then this seems to work, and then we go to that, which gets a bit robotic, that you notice, oh, you're responding differently to this this time, right? Is mm-hmm. it positive? Maybe I'll do more of it. Is it not so good? Maybe I'll try something different. So we're enjoying ourselves because it's more of a new experience every time we have sex. And most people find that once you've been together and you've had sex a hundred, a thousand times, things get routine, they get monotonous. If you can find something new and different or just experience it differently, pay attention to what you're noticing now as opposed to what you think you're going to notice or what you noticed last time, you have much more pleasure. I think we've just saved, what, about a thousand marriages, (laughs) 10,000 marriages right there with that statement alone? I think so. So how do we facilitate mindfulness into our busy lives? How would you go about it? So the first is to notice, notice thoughts, especially judgments. You know, and if you're like, oh, I'm not going to orgasm or I don't look good or any of those. Wow. There's that thought. 
again. Right. Notice it, let it go. And practicing it, you don't have to do it just when you are having sex. And a lot of people think like, oh, I don't have time in my day. So you know what? Next time you're waiting for the elevator, don't pull out your phone and check your messages. Do a little scan. What do I notice in my body? What's my breathing like? What does it feel like under my feet? What do I notice in my eyes? Like what's the visuals around me? What sounds do I hear? How am I feeling? So just little moments through the day, like, oh, instead of doing something, because often it's a response to I'm nervous or I'm anxious or I'm bored, Bored. right? Okay, let me just fill my attention with what am I feeling? Because if you can do that when you're not having sex, it becomes much easier to do that when you're also having sex and your sex life might improve and the rest of your life might also, you might feel that you can deal with boredom, you can deal with that anxiety, you can be in the moment and enjoy life. Fantastic advice. Thank you for coming in today. Pleasure. I look forward to chatting with you next month. When we return, we're going to discuss the best way to lose weight around your middle on The Tonic. And now the soul segment with spiritual medium, transpersonal therapist and teacher, Lisa Marvin. Through her use of tarot cards, your questions about love, money and career are sure to be answered. Thank you for joining Soul Segment. This week, we're going to be looking at your financial situation using the Tarot cards. The first card we're going to look at is the Ace of Cups. This energy is what has brought you to where you are now. I really love the Ace of Cups because Aces deal with the birth of something new. And Cups deals with emotions, feelings, the sensitive side of oneself, and love. You might ask yourself, what does love and emotion have to do with making money? Well, what it's showing us is that if you connect with doing things that bring you joy and happiness, you certainly will feel more fulfilled at the end of the day. The next card is where you are now and what you need to focus on, and it's the Two of Swords. The Two of Swords can sometimes be a bit of a difficult card because it asks you to have blind faith. That is one of the hardest things for us to have because there's no certainty that we're going to get what we want. However, the universe is telling us that this month is the perfect time to practice having that faith and knowing that we will get to where we want to be. The final card is the death card. Although it sounds kind of scary, the death card is actually very positive. It means what's going to bring you into the future is letting go of old feelings and thought patterns that no longer work and to really harness and nurture the thought patterns and feelings that we want to keep. All in all, this month looks very good. It might be a little challenging practicing how to have faith in things that we might not have proof of, but it will help us at letting go of old baggage. Good luck. Thanks for joining me, and I'm looking forward to connecting with you again next week. This has been The Soul Segment with Lisa Marvin. To contact Lisa with your questions, please visit metaphysique.ca. I'd like to give a shout-out to our sponsor, Purica. Purica wants you to turn its protein into your power. A blend of the finest vegan protein and the antioxidant powerhouse that is the pure chaga mushrooms. Purica Power features ingredients and enzymes designed to optimize digestion and absorption. Unlike many protein powders, Purica Power tastes great with water and mixes easily. It's available in chocolate, vanilla, and natural unflavored. From the Purica family to yours, Purica Power is a new way to make the most of every day. It's all part of the Purica commitment to making a positive difference in the lifestyle of its customers. Ask your favorite health food store for Purica Power Vegan Protein or visit Purica.com. Purica, nature, science, you.
Enjoying luxury outdoor furniture is more attainable than ever with ARD Outdoor's annual clearance sale with select items up to 75% off. This is the final weekend to take advantage of the end of the season savings on outdoor dining, chaise lounges, sofa sets, umbrellas, planters, outdoor rugs, and everything else you'd need to create a Zen retreat or entertainment hub. Visit their showroom at 3019 Dufferin Street in Toronto. Discontinued yard sale items in the tent are up to 75% off, or select from new stock at up to 20% off with custom sunbrella cushions made to order. The sale ends Sunday, so visit ardoutdoor.com for more details. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Welcome back. Our next guest, Kathleen Trotter, is a fitness expert, nutritionist, life coach, monthly guest on BT Montreal and Rogers Ottawa, and author of the book Finding Your Fit. Welcome back to the show, my friend. Ah, it's my pleasure. So my whole life, I've struggled with my weight. And you and I have talked about... We you have, know, although I wouldn't ever know it. You're so energetic and spry and yeah. you look so fit when I meet you. I used to weigh 242 pounds wow. and it took me a year, but I lost 52 pounds and I've kept that off for more or less 13 years, which makes me unique. I know that once people take it off, it's very hard to keep it off. Well, I just have to say, maybe that's why we click as friends, because I don't know if you know this about me, but I was a really overweight, fat, unhealthy, unhappy teenager. So I have kept my weight off when I'm 35 now and I started my journey when I was about 17. So for a while. So maybe we understand each other. It's maybe. a hard process and you learn a lot about yourself through going through that health journey, right? Right. And, and we're here to talk about yeah. how to start that journey. Because yeah, it is a journey, to, right? To weight loss. Yeah. And I think one of the things that people do wrong, quote unquote wrong in the journey is they think, oh, well, tomorrow I'll be fit. Right. And then once I'm fit, I'll always be fit. I don't don't have to think about it anymore. And it's like, um, I think about it every single day. Not in a bad way, but in a like, what did I learn from yesterday? How could I be better? How could I tweak the process? How do I not want to go back to when I was 15? How, like, what would the 25-year-old Kathleen do versus the 30? You know, it's like, it is such a journey. It is. And you have to adjust as you get older. But we're here to talk about the start because what we're focusing in on today isn't maintaining a healthy lifestyle, but it's sort of step one, which is sort of putting yourself into a healthy lifestyle. And And there's a difference between losing weight and being healthy. So what is that difference? Yeah, I think that is a really important thing to highlight because people will come in to say to me and say, Kathleen, I'm trying to lose 20 pounds and I can't lose it. And they will name things that they're doing, which are very healthy, like they're adding more walking into their daily life. They might be eating more vegetables, drinking more water. But there is a difference between a healthy lifestyle and losing weight. And there's a difference between losing weight if you're sort of 300 pounds and losing weight if you're five pounds from your healthy weight, right? So the closer you are to your healthy weight, the harder it is. Like, oh no, I'm there. I don't need to lose anymore. So you kind of have to know where you're starting and where you're going. And you have to figure out, is it a a weight loss journey or is it a health journey or is it both? Because they can overlap a lot, but you can get healthier without losing weight and you can lose weight without becoming healthier, right? Like if you're already pretty close to your goal weight and you decide to lose 10 more pounds, it's probably not going to make you healthier, especially if you're female. It might actually to make you less healthy because it's not good to be so low body fat, right? right? So those are all variables that you do want to keep in mind. But if your goal is particularly fat loss yes. versus just getting healthier, and as I said, they can overlap, but it is specific to understand that getting on a treadmill, walking for 20 minutes, really good for health, 
right? That's sort of the steady state cardio. Right. But if you want to lose weight, one of the things you need to focus on is interval training and strength training. And it's interesting. I used to do a ton of more cardio, Mm -hmm. even for maintenance. And maintenance for me, Mm -hmm. health-wise, is keeping my weight down. I now do two HIIT classes a week, which is high-intensity interval training, and I do a strength training class, and neither of those things were part of my health regimen when I lost my weight. Steady-state cardio is part of my maintenance mode as well. Like I'm not saying you shouldn't do it. It's also really good for my mind. The worse my mood, the more important my steady-state cardio is. But I know that if I want to sort of tone up for a particular, like a wedding or a media event, right, it's the interval training that's going to work, and it's the strength training, and it's the diet. It's the nutrition. Well, you know, if you're really trying to lose weight. Exercise yeah. is great, but let's face it. It's nutrition. The, the lion's share of the work is the intake. It's not It's not how you burn your calories. Absolutely. And what I always tell people is it's this really interesting, tricky balance between the high intensity training and then the recovery, which comes from the nutrition and comes from the sleep, because you can't do high intensity training every day and not injure yourself. And if you injure yourself, you can't exercise, you're going to be demoralized, and that's going to totally stop basically your health journey, because it's so frustrating to you, you know not be able to move and you feel in pain. And so I like to sort of think about it as a a week and everything that goes into the week and what are the important components that go into a week. So you might do interval training on Monday, Tuesday, and then you might say, okay, Wednesday, I'm going to sleep in a little bit more because sleep is so important for uh, weight loss, right? Hormonal rebalance, body, brain recovers while you sleep. Then you might do strength training Thursday, more intervals Friday. You might do like a yoga or Pilates class on Saturday because that's, again, really good for your nervous system, flexibility. And then on Sunday, take another recovery day. And instead of exercising, take those two hours and do meal prep. Because again, it's much better to do five days of exercise and a couple days of recovery and meal prep and then eat really well for the rest of the week then try for seven days of exercise. You know, when I was losing my weight, I found that I needed to do five or six days a week. And now that I'm in maintenance mode, Mm -hmm. it's still five days a week. When we talk about interval training, what do you mean by that for people who don't know? Bouts of high intensity and bouts of lower intensity. So you can do structured interval training. So like a Tabata interval would be, it's a four minute session where you do 20 seconds high intensity, 10 seconds rest, eight times three, which is four minutes. So you could do jumping jacks, you could do burpees, you could do high knees, you could do that running, anything. Right. Uh, but you could also do a less structured form of interval training, something like a fart-like interval, which is where you pick random landmarks. So you're like, oh, that stop sign ahead. I'm going to go as fast as I can towards that stop sign. And then walk. And then like, yeah, walk. You know, you could be doing a jog or a run to that stop sign and yeah. then a walk, or you could do a fast walk and then a slower walk. The one thing that's fantastic about intervals is not only is that they're effective, and they're convenient because you can do them anywhere. But no matter your fitness level, you can do them. And I think that people often think, oh, I have to wait until I'm fit to do intervals. I have to wait until I'm an athlete, right? But your interval could literally just be a slightly faster walk. So I like to compare it to highway versus city driving. If you're in the city and you're like, oh, this is your normal pace. You get on the highway and it feels really fast. That's your interval. Then you get off and you go back to your city driving, which used to feel normal and it now feels slow. So intervals does that to your brain. It's like what used to be hard becomes easy. So it also increases your fitness level while also burning fat. 
So it's a really, really great way of fitting a lot of exercise, a lot of calorie burn, high, what's called your epoch, your post-workout calorie burn into a shorter amount of time. Okay, so some people shy away from interval training because they think they're going to hurt themselves. Is that a myth or is that real? Well, it's sort of one of those could partly real, right? Like you definitely need recovery, but it depends on the type of interval training you're doing as well. So you could do intervals in the pool. Like if you're worried about the impact nature of intervals, maybe you do a higher impact one like running on a Monday and then you do pool on Tuesday or you do biking intervals, right? right? Like you don't have to do running as your interval. You, you don't have, have to do... batter your body with a high in, with a high oh my impact. God. Why right? didn't I think of that phrase? Batter your body. Absolutely. You know, my book is called Finding Your Fit and that's really what it is. It's about finding what works for you. Correct. So some of my clients, their interval training is dancing in their living room. Like they put on a piece of music and then when the chorus comes around, they just dance like crazy. And then when the chorus stops, they sort of dance a little bit slower. And that's interval training. Yep. All you have to do is alternate between really really high bouts of intensity and, you know, more mellow stuff versus just getting on a treadmill or the elliptical or the bike and not even really thinking about your workout. That's the one thing that derails your fitness success the most, because then you think you're doing something. Then you're like, oh my God, I worked out for an hour. I deserve these three pieces of chocolate cake. But you're like, well, actually you just sort of sauntered on a treadmill, which is good to sort of circle back to what we started with. It, It is definitely good for your overall health. It's better than sitting on the sofa, but it's not the best for fat loss, especially fat loss around your middle section. Right. And another key to, to, to weight loss or fat loss is strength training. Absolutely. Yeah. It builds lean tissue. It's also great just for functional ability. And the more functionally fit and strong you are, the more likely you're just going to be active in your daily life. So as opposed to sitting and, you know, watching your grandkids or your kids play a sport, you'll get up, you'll do it with them. Instead of letting somebody else pick up your groceries, you do it for you. So the more you do things, the more you can do things and the fitter and more active you get. You, you burn more calories in a resting state. Absolutely. Uh, you have more mobility. If you're stronger, you're able to move. Core strength is integral. Absolutely. As we age, mobility becomes a larger and larger issue. Through strength training, you can make sure that you're more mobile. And if you're more mobile, you're going to age more gracefully. And, oh, I love it. And, you know, you can go for those walks, which do burn calories. Absolutely. I think you might just have to write my next book for me. Who needs no. me? You're awesome. No, no, no. We have to have you here. You're the credibility. I'm just the mouthpiece. Hmm? I, but you're a good mouthpiece, so that's good. You know, strength training is also fun. It feels yeah. really well, empowering. Well, sometimes, you know, yesterday I was doing these sitting presses over my head, and honestly, I had, this, is, like, this is not fun. This is not fun. And then and I had to do pull-ups, which is my Waterloo. Uh, and <sighs> I, I, hate, I, yeah. I hate pull-ups. I've got good core strength and lower strength, like mm-hmm. step-ups I can do, no problem. But man, I hate those pull-ups. And But you have to do them. You have to do them. And I always say you have to do the things you don't absolutely love so then you can do the things you do love. Like I love to run. I know we've talked about yeah. this before. And so when I don't want to do the things like strength training that feel kind of like work, I say, Kathleen, if you want to be fit enough to run and not get injured, you strength train. Thank you for coming on the show. Oh, it's my pleasure. You're going to be back next month and we're going to discuss tips for gym newbies, right? Yes. Fantastic. We've got to take a short break, but when we return, we'll learn about the importance of blood maintenance in our medical system on the tonic. And now, time for Pure Beauty. Learn all about holistic skincare and health featuring chemical-free ingredients. Here's naturopathic doctor and co-founder of Pure and Simple Beauty and Wellness Centers, Dr. Kristen Ma. Today, I'd like to talk to you about a plant that can be used in your summer skincare, neem. Often called a life-giving tree, the neem tree bears seeds, leaves, flowers, and bark, all which have been used in Ayurvedic medicine for centuries. 
because of its antibacterial and antiparasitic properties, can be found in many Ayurvedic preparations. Many of you may have come across neem toothpaste at the health food store. But while neem has often been used for its antimicrobial actions, it has a lot of uses for our skin. In particular, neem has been used traditionally for inflammation. This is known in Ayurveda as pitta, which is heat or the element of fire. Its anti-inflammatory properties, or pitta pacifying properties, are why neem oil can be used to temper rashes, acne, and hives. This is helpful in the summertime, as sun exposure is a trigger for inflamed flare-ups of rosacea, as well as a source of heat rash. Acne is particularly fitting for neem, as inflamed acne benefits both from its calming and antiseptic actions. Neem is also a natural mosquito repellent and fungicide. It's nice to have on hand if you love spending time outdoors. Applying this oil may stave off pesky mosquitoes and prevent skin infections, making gardening and camping more comfortable if you're prone to either. In fact, I think it's worth considering packing neem oil on your next summer camping trip. It can be used in a multiple of ways, from repelling and disinfecting to calming all sorts of irritation. It's also a biodegradable addition for your wash bag. So, if you're looking to summarize your skincare, think about neem for your routine this season. This has been Pure Beauty with Dr. Kristen Ma. Learn more and ask questions about holistic beauty and their wellness centers through their Facebook page at pureandsimple.ca. This segment should not take the place of medical advice. Always talk to your healthcare provider about personal health concerns. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Hi, this is Jamie Busson. I'm not only the host of the Tonic Talk Show, I'm also the publisher of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is a health and wellness magazine distributed with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in the most affluent neighborhoods in Toronto. It's also available free on racks at over 150 locations across the GTA. For more information about Tonic Magazine, visit tonictoronto.com. Hey, if you like the Tonic Talk Show, you'll love Tonic Magazine, and vice versa. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. My next guest, Dr. Stuart McCluskey, is an associate professor in the Department of Anesthesia at the University of Toronto and a staff anesthesiologist at the Toronto General Hospital. He's a cardiac anesthesiologist with a special interest in liver transplantation. These areas of anesthesia and surgery require the greatest amount of blood products of any area. So one of his main areas of focus is how to avoid blood and blood products transfusion within a surgery. As the medical director of the Patient Blood Management Program, he applies the results of his research program to improving clinical care, starting when a patient is first seen in the preoperative clinic. Welcome to the show, doctor. Thank you very much for having me. I know in conversations with you, the key takeaway point that you want our listeners to understand is if they have concerns over blood within the context of a surgery or recovery, the anesthesiologist is actually the doctor they should be talking with. Is that right? Well, certainly one of those people involved and most patients are seen preoperatively in the preoperative assessment clinic by an anesthesiologist and their concerns can be uh, addressed by that physician there and, you know, sort of in an unbiased and open way. 
way. So why is blood conservation so very important? There are many reasons for that. You know, we started this program back in 1999 at the Western where we were looking at joint arthroplasty. And in those cases, we were transfusing people, about 20% of them were being transfused. Mm-hmm. It wasn't necessary. And anytime you do anything that's unnecessary, has no significant benefit to the patient, all you're left with is harm. If you give a medication and it wasn't necessary, you're only left with the harm of that medication. Right. And the same thing with blood. And when you look at the evidence, it's not just my evidence, by the way, there's a lot of people working in this area. When you look at the evidence, you identify those patients who were transfused blood or blood products and those who were not, it looks like the blood increases their risk of complications with surgery, period. Hmm. Is that fair? I mean, there's no doubt that blood is essential. When people bleed out, they need blood. There's absolutely essential sometimes. But if you give it when it's not necessary, then it's a waste of resources and it runs the risk of complications. I had no idea that there were surgeries where transfusions were optional and the decision was being made to include the blood. That does seem wasteful in some respects. It's not necessarily optional, but there's a medical debate or clinical equipoise at times. When should I give this blood or should I not? But even before that, you know, back in the early days with uh, my colleague Kevin Karkudi and his uh, assistant, uh, Lucia Evans, they started to look at, you know, what's the hemoglobin level before you start surgery? Right. We knew the numbers. We do these CBC tests all the time, but you have to identify those patients who don't have as much as others. And if you do, then there's something you can do about it. And we were supported by some of the drug companies that gave us erythropoietin, and we were able to increase their hemoglobin or increase what we call the red blood cell mass. So if you come to surgery, the more you have of the red stuff, the less likely you are to require a transfusion. So early on, we could even reduce the transfusion rate from 40% down to 20% just by addressing their preoperative anemia, identifying it and addressing it. And we still do that today. It's still a vital part of the patient blood management program. So what you're saying is sort of pre-screening people before surgery to see what their health is is like in terms of their blood Mm -hmm. will impact on whether or not they necessarily have to have a transfusion. So, you know, just doing something simple like meeting with the patient in advance to assess this can save all sorts of resources. Yeah. And then you can have surgery delayed and you can do very simple things too. Like, Uh, Like what? How else do you manage? Well, you can tell the patient, look, you're anemic because of iron deficiency, and you can suggest iron in their diet. You can wait for iron, to, the hemoglobin to recover naturally. But how long would that take? Like if I were to come in for surgery and, and you found out that I had an iron deficiency, how long would you have to delay surgery? Well, we have ways of augmenting the normal physiological response with erythropoietin or intravenous iron. So we can bypass the absorption of iron in the stomach and just give it to you directly intravenous. We believe that enhances the recovery of hemoglobin. And this takes about, depending on the hemoglobin starting point, three, four weeks. Uh But sometimes surgery can be delayed that long or we can address it early enough. Other times it can't be and you have to go ahead with surgery and then you need to accept the risk of a blood transfusion. And I have to stress that blood has never been safer in this country than it ever has been. It really is. They use the precautionary principle with blood, which means that if there's a potential risk, even though it's very, very unlikely, they still address that potential risk. So it's a very 
safe product. Jamie, we just met, and you seem like a very charitable guy, very no, nice I'm guy. No, I'm actually not. No. Well, okay. I'm neither of those things. You really, you really don't know me at all. <laughs> first, first impressions are a loser, I guess. But, but I don't, I don't particularly want to have your blood unless I need it. Right. You know. So you know, just from although that, my blood is very good. Well, I'm you'd sure be very, it's, you'd be very happy with my blood. I'm sure it's the best, but you know, it's probably blue and in, in color. But no, I, you know, I, I, under, you know I understand point. what you're saying. The thought of having somebody else's blood in them is is disturbing for a lot of people. I'm not disturbing, but if I don't have to. Thank you very much, but no thanks. And there is the basic cost. I mean, the Ministry of Health and Long-Term Care spends a lot of money to reduce our dependency on blood. When we started the supply and demand of blood and blood products, and we're starting to come closer together, so we had to come up with strategies to avoid that. And you know, there's some great programs that they run through a program called uh, OrbCon and OnTrack, and they organize this, and not just the Toronto General Hospital, the Toronto Western Hospital, 25 other hospitals in Ontario have organized the nurses and the nurse coordinators. Cielo Bingley works at the Toronto General General Hospital, and they do not just the preoperative screening, but they manage blood loss and the risk of blood loss interoperatively as well. So it's a concerted effort throughout the province in Ontario uh, that has had a significant impact in reducing the requirements we have for blood and blood products. And that is dollars and cents as well as avoiding something that can be harmful. Is blood maintenance that much more expensive than, let's say, as you said, making sure that people's hemoglobin or iron deficiencies, I guess it's less expensive to deal with that than it is to do the transfusion. Is that it? Well, there are many steps that can be expensive. We now in cardiac surgery, for example, look to see if a patient's bleeding because of a coagulopathy or a deficit in the ability of the blood to stop the bleeding, mm-hmm. we look to see why and we apply specific tests to identify what blood product they need. We know they need red blood cells, but do right. they need plasmas or fibrinogens or platelets? And we reduce the requirement of each blood product by being more appropriate and clever, if you will, giving the right blood product the right time. So what is the role, your role as an anesthesiologist within the blood management system? Well, as we talked about, I'm very much into the idea that as an anesthesiologist, I'm starting at the beginning of surgery and going to the end of surgery and looking at all the risk factors for patients, their own comorbidities and the risk of a blood transfusion. And when it comes to deciding who needs to have a blood transfusion in the operating room, it's usually the anesthesiologist who says, look, this hemoglobin is too low based on this person's comorbidities and risk factors. I think it's important that this patient get the unit of blood, and I've now done a risk-benefit analysis for this patient on the fly. And sometimes the risk-benefit analysis is very obvious. There's, right. It's coming out fast. It needs to go back in fast. But we're there for probably the estimate between 40 and 50% of all transfusions because we're in that situation. My liver transplants sometimes bleed a lot and we have to give a lot of blood products. So it's a constant battle and it's something you can't just do. You have to think about it. It's for the patient's sake and for the patient's outcome. You're looking at it from the position of the doctor and the anesthesiologist. I'm looking at it from the position of the potential patient. Mm. So advocating for yourself as a patient, should I be addressing the anesthesiologist about this or is there somebody else within the surgery context? Like, do I go to the surgeon and discuss my concerns about blood management? Yeah. How do you advocate for yourself and how does the patient put themselves forward in this? Well, I hope I didn't make it sound like anesthesiologists are the only ones. No, no, I know know you didn't mean that. Uh, Because it's the nurses after surgery, the nurses during surgery, and the surgeons are absolutely essential because they're the ones that are, I'm not going to say this right, causing the blood loss. Right. And they've had probably the biggest impact. When I started to work in people with urology or orthopedics, orthopedics, they used to transfuse about 20% of patients who had hip and knee surgery. It's now 2%. Wow. 
And it's certainly less than five at most institutions. And it's not just because of what I did, but that's part of it. But things that they've adopted and considered, when we give them ideas, they'll take them on. So everyone's reducing uh, transfusion. So the surgeon you can talk to, the anesthesiologist is someone there talking to you about your risks. You actually sign a consent when you go for surgery for blood and blood products. And if you don't want blood, you have to tell us, and then we'll make a plan very specific for you. And it means you'll have to do a few other other things that others wouldn't because they've accepted the risk of transfusions. But that's what where we'll coordinate that. But everyone's working together. It's part of medicine now that is, is something I really like. It's called perioperative care. Mm-hmm. So it's not just me. It's a surgeon. It's the nurse that sees the patient in the pre-admission, post-operative, the ICU. All of us are working together with the same theme and the same objective, and it's patient-centered. It sounds cliche, but we really care about what happens to you and your surgical journey, if you will. Fantastic. If our listeners want to learn more about your views on blood management and the work you're doing, how would they reach out to you on that? Is there an email address or a website they can go to? Certainly. I, I can be reached at stuart.mccluskey at uhn.ca or contacting me through the Canadian Blood Services. They have a lot of the information I'm talking talking about right. OnTrack and OrbCon are really good uh, sources of information. But yeah, you know, I'd be happy to answer questions that people might have. Well, that's fantastic. Thank you for coming on the show today. Yeah, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you for listening to The Tonic. You can download this episode as a podcast on zoomerradio.ca and thetonic.ca. For articles written by Carlisle Jansen, be sure to pick up your copy of Tonic Magazine. Tonic is available free on racks at over 200 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in 11 choice neighborhoods in Toronto. Or you can visit our website at tonictoronto.com. If you're interested in providing feedback or coming on the show, you can email me directly at jamie at tonictoronto.com. Please join us next week on The Tonic when we'll discuss whether your liver needs you to go on a diet, the benefits of cooking the seasonal bounty, the mindful way of loving your body, and shifting your health mindset into fall. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. Please consult a healthcare professional before starting any diet, exercise, supplementation, or medication program. This has been a paid announcement. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.